Uh, yeah, so this morning we're continuing our series entitled Constant, uh, The Heartbeat of Hope Within Scripture. Uh, this series we've been looking at the Bible as a complete story, the story of God, where God reveals who he is and how we're called to follow him in the world in which we live. Through this story, we're looking at various themes in the story, and today's theme is the theme of rest. Um, I'll go ahead and lead us in praying around that theme, and then we'll dive in. God, will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word made alive to us in Christ, um, made alive to us even in our daily experiences. And so even as we come around this chapter of John's gospel, which is so familiar to many of us, would you enliven it, God, to our hearts? Would you open our hearts to new revelation? Uh, for many of us coming in, God, uh, discouraged and tired, would this word be uh, an encouragement? Would it bring us strength? And for some of us, God, we need uh, truth. We need correction. We need you to guide us in the way of truth. And so would you be the truth to us today, Jesus? And pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, man, this conversation on rest just kind of came at us. And you'll have to know I wanted to take a, a detour and just talk about politics. I love politics. Like, a bit of a junkie. But I think it's an important conversation to actually center in on. Uh, this idea of rest, and I'll just share two reasons I think those are it's important for us, obvious cultural reasons. Um, earlier this summer in July, I was reading an article in the Washington Post, and it was uh, highlighting this Pew Research study that, that, uh, that was showing that majorities, at that point, 110 days before the election, majorities of every demographic group in our country, to use their language, were exhausted at that point by the election. This is 110 days before this last Tuesday. 54% of seniors, 67% of millennials, 62% of women, 56% of men, 62% of whites, 54% of non-whites, identical proportions of Republicans and Democrats. 54%, 55%, exhausted. Here's the, so here's the key, 110 days before the actual election. You hadn't mailed anything in at that point and you're tired. Uh, and not exhausted, by the way, not exhausted because you didn't care, weren't interested, ugh, don't want to hear about it, right? Here's what the article showed. Their polling numbers showed a record high number of people who were, 80% who were, <laughs> cared too much about the election, who were, who cared a lot to use their language, which is a huge spike. Fewer than half of Americans in 2000 cared about the election when asked the same question in a very similarly controversial election, if you remember that election. Here's a quote from that article. We're exhausted by the coverage, but we can't look away. It's 11 p.m., see if this was you. You're about to finally put down your phone, call it a night, right? Crawl into bed, but then that headline flashes across your screen, the outrageous boast, the jaw-dropping proposal, the sick Twitter burn. You're sucked back into a political maelstrom it's, if you've heard of the horse ebooks Twitter account, it's the horse ebooks election. Everything happens so much. Everything happens so much right now. And then Tuesday happened. And I don't know about you, <laughs> but I'm, I was exhausted by Wednesday morning. Exhausted. So that's the reasons culturally I think rest is an important conversation today. And then there's personal reasons that I'll get into as we unfold this study. But I'll just say at the outset here, just being 
vulnerable. This has been a busy, and I'm just using that word because that's the word we use to fill in how we're feeling. It's been a busy season in my life. Busy, wearisome. If you know, I remodeled our basement, and every night of the week, literally, literally, it's all I could do to floss my teeth, because my dentist tells me I have to, and brush them before I fall into bed, like out. So Jesus' words in Matthew 11, where he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He actually, uh, the message puts it this way, are you tired? Maybe this is you. Are you worn out? Here's Jesus, come to me, get away with me. I'll help you recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Is that you today? Just raise your hand if you're tired. I've got a few people who care. So the rest of you, there's coffee in the back. I don't know. I think this conversation on rest is appropriate. It's an appropriate next step from Tuesday. It's an appropriate step for us if we're exhausted in life. Uh, And so what I want to invite us into is looking at rest through the lens of John 15. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, And we're going to look at it through kind of three headings. What rest is, why we need it, and then just a few promises that are held for us in rest, okay? So what it is, why we need it, and then a few of the promises held for us in the experience of rest, okay? So first, definitions are important. What is rest? And uh, there's a number of ways you can look at rest. The number of ways the Bible looks at rest, you can look at it through the lens of the Sabbath. Like if you just read the Old Testament, even the New Testament, this word Sabbath is always coming up, a literal 24-hour period of not working. That's, that's rest. That's an example of rest. There's this eschatological, to use a big fancy theological word, thing Hebrews 3 and 4 talk about, like uh, not failing to enter the rest of God, God's rest, which is sort of heaven, the vision of heaven, the finished work of God through Christ. Those are ways you can look at it. Let me ask you, when I say rest or invite us to rest, what kinds of things come to mind? Just name a couple. Peace. Bed, like taking a nap or a hammock maybe. Outdoors. Yeah. Recovery. Yeah. Relaxation, vacation. Lots of things come to mind, right? And rest for many of us is that proverbial Saturday afternoon nap on the couch while watching some matinee, right? Or vacation, or literally just long sleep in a hammock, recovering from some weary experience in life, taking a break, turning off the radio and the TV and your social media feed and just breathing. That's a kind of rest, right? But there's another kind of rest that I want to invite us to focus in on and explore. So earlier this week, I just happened to be reading on Monday, John 15 in my my own personal devotions. Came to this passage that we've all heard at some time or another in our lives. Maybe we haven't, but it's pretty familiar. And the word used there, you heard Brian read it, is remain or abide, right? Remain in me as I remain in you. Abide in me, if you have another translation. So I, I looked it up. I'm just curious. I, you know me. I love words, love definitions of words. So I looked up what that word means in the Greek, and it literally means to stay put. So, like, don't move, right? That's what Jesus is saying. And that's why he uses the analogy of vine and branches. Put down roots in me. Grow roots. Uh, Stay rooted in Jesus is kind of what he's talking about. So that's one angle. That's the literal meaning of what Jesus is talking about. But there's another angle as well. As I started to dig down in this dictionary definition, and it has to do with watchfulness, paying attention. So elsewhere in the gospel, you might remember this story, end of Jesus' life. 
Garden of Gethsemane. You know, this is the night of his betrayal and his arrest. Eventually, he goes to the cross and dies. And he's visibly, if you read the story, he's visibly upset. Like Judas, one of his best friends, has just sold him out, right? Remember this? And he has that famous prayer, my father, if it's possible, may this cup, he's talking about his death, may it, may it pass for me, but not my will, your will, right? He says that. Do you remember what he says before he prays that to his disciples? Do you remember what he says? Here's what he says. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here with me and keep watch. Keep watch. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 15, abide. Why would they translate it differently? I don't know. Keep watch. Remain. Stay awake. Now, it's already Monday morning. I'm reading this. I'm thinking about rest. I know this is coming today. I think Tuesday's coming. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm considering what the Lord might have for us. So Tuesday happens. Wednesday happens. Like many of you, I'm not sleeping well. I'm in a complete fog. And I realized that the definition of rest in the Bible is almost, at some levels, totally different than our conventional definition of rest. We think of rest falling asleep, getting a long sleep, vacation. The Bible says, stay awake, be attentive, be watchful. I was really struck by the contrast. I don't know if you are too, but the contrast between watchfulness, attentiveness, and just totally checking out, <laughs> disengaging, very big difference. Like, listen to this. If I were to replace stay awake with remain, listen to how it sounds. I'm the true vine. Here's John 15. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it'll be more fruitful. Now listen to this. Stay awake in me as I stay awake in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must stay awake in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you stay awake in me. Makes a difference, doesn't it? Big difference. To rest is to stay awake. That's kind of the definition I want to work with with you this morning, to be attentive. And therefore, I think resting as a discipline for us, deep attentiveness to what God's doing in our lives, is just a good thing <laughs> to consider post-election, post-season of remodeling my basement, post-whatever you're in, just allowing God to restore our lives uh, in the wake of difficulties and just wearisome tasks and seasons, not just by saying, God, do it, but watching what God's doing as he does it, paying attention and celebrating with God and maybe even responding to what he's doing in those seasons. So how would that approach to rest change the way you rest? Think about that. Like staying awake when you're down rather than just disengaging completely emotionally, physically. Uh, paying attention instead of kind of knocking off for a nap, though you might need it. Being mindful and fully present instead of distracted by the many things on your devices, your social media feed, the meetings, the emails, whatever's coming your way, Paying attention, being mindful, fully present in the wake of those things. Uh, that's what it means to really rest. What Jesus is inviting us into in John 15. Attentiveness. And so I see many of you paying attention now, and you're saying, that sounds good. Why do I need to do that? I'm kind of upset right now. I don't want to pay attention. 
Here's why. We're going to look at why we need rest, and we're going to discover in this the necessity, but also the, the consequences of not resting, okay? The necessity of it, but also the consequences of not resting. So listen. The necessity, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, remain in me, stay awake in me as I stay awake in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. If you stay awake in me, if you remain in me, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Listen to this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Unqualified. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or as Jesus puts it earlier in the Gospel of John, John 6, the Spirit can make for life, sheer muscle and willpower doesn't make anything happen. Jesus said it. <laughs> Try as you might, nothing can happen. In other words, uh, how much can you do without Jesus? Let me just ask you that. How much can you do without Jesus? Nothing. <laughs> That's the answer. Good answer. And isn't it, I mean, isn't it amazing how busy you and I can be doing nothing? Like, we're, how I might spend my lifetime as a pastor, as a Christian, in service of Jesus, like, doing nothing, <laughs> Nothing, because I'm not resting in Jesus. I'm not remaining in Jesus. Not because you're doing the wrong things. Don't hear me wrong here. You're doing a lot of good things. All of us are. We're, our intentions are good. But we, because we aren't first and foremost resting in Jesus, doing the one necessary thing, remain, we're accomplishing nothing. That's what Jesus says. And by the way, if this is you, like, I'm just getting nailed this week on this. Uh, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. Don't worry. Once upon a time, way back in the Old Testament, remember this guy, Abraham? Father Abraham had seven sons. Yeah, we get up. Yeah, so, May Abraham, you remember this guy? 75 years old. Check this out. He received a promise from God. What was going to happen? Remember the whole stars in the sky thing? He's going to be the father of many nations. And then, for the next 12 years, nothing happened. Infertility, frustration, disappointment. So guess what? He and his wife, Sarah, you know this story, right? They decide, well, maybe God needed us to do something more. So they decide to have Ishmael through their slave, Hagar. It's sort of this last-ditch last effort, right? To make good on God's promise to them. Here's what happens next in the story. God says, Abraham... What are you doing? <laughs> That's my paraphrase. But this wasn't the plan, Abraham. I mean, the plan was for you and Sarah, not you and Hagar, to have a son. Stick to the plan, Abraham. Right? So Abraham does. And for the next 13 years, more infertility, more disappointment, more frustration. And so along comes God. At the age of 99, guess what God says to Abraham? Hey, Abraham, I know it's been a hard road, bro. I know. I'm with you. It's time for you and Sarah to have a son. But, but before you do that, let's have you circumcised. <laughs> and I don't know if you know anything about circumcision, but if your response would be like Abraham's, you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me, God? I'm 99, and you're going to have me do that now? Like, and it, you see, circumcision, it can be a lot of stuff. And I'm glad we have a couple kids in the room. This is going to be great. But on the most crude and basic levels, it's incapacitation, okay? In other words, Abraham is forced into this posture of weakness. Um, literally, 
probably couldn't walk for a few days. Back then, maybe weeks. Definitely couldn't have sex with Sarah. It was God's way of saying to, to Abraham, the fulfillment of this promise I gave you 25 years ago, it's fatherhood, it's not going to be accomplished in your own strength, by your own doing. It's, it's going to be my doing. <laughs> and just to be sure you know that, I'm going to weaken you, incapacitate you, make it impossible, as if 99 years old wasn't impossible enough. Do you, I mean, do you see what this means for us? Uh, the point and how it relates to rest, remaining. It means that in our search to know and follow God, we're invited to step off the ground of our own lives, our own accomplishments, our own, look what I did, pulled myself up by my bootstraps, you know, uh, sort of getting up the ladder of my goals, my dreams, my accomplishments, and just laying down on the, Christ, uh, the, the ground of what Christ has done and will do, uh, just surrendering to him. Here's the summary statement I think of rest. It's learned dependency. When we rest, we learn dependency. We need to learn to be dependent. And that's an absolutely countercultural thing for us to say we want to learn, if not offensive. We don't lay down as Americans. We just don't. We climb up, right? Uh, we don't surrender. We strive and we fight. Like, we don't rest. We do. And so for many of us in the room today, uh, this is a huge challenge to how we currently understand our lives. So let me ask you a question. Are you living your life right now, attempting to control the outcomes of your day, each and every day? I see a few of you nodding. Yeah, I am. Are you deriving your meaning from your effort, the effort you put into your work each day, or your marriage? or your family as you're raising your kids? Are you checking that box of your worth based on the approval that others give you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, number of likes and retweets you got? Do you see the election, <laughs> the result of the election, and then go, it's time to act, time to do something. And guess what? It's not time to do something. It's time to rest in Christ. I'm not saying disengage. Remember what I said earlier, pay attention is what Jesus is inviting us into. It's time to depend on Jesus to do much more than we could ask or imagine right now. It is. It's time to live a life shaped by Psalm 46. You know those words, be still and know I'm God? Uh, lives which, in which we're called to cease striving. That's the NASB version of that psalm. Cease striving and know that God is God. No president is God. You and I are not God. Cease striving and know that he's God, okay? God is saying that to each one of us here today. Um, I've got a life for you. I want you to know that life. But first you need to, to be in a posture where you can receive that life. And the, only, the best and only way you can receive that, apart from me you can do nothing, Jesus says, is to lay down, <laughs> depend, depend on Jesus. As one of Richard's mentors, uh, Major Ian Thomas, he's the founder of Torchbearers, he says it this way, it's for you to be, it's for him to do. It's for you to be, it's for him to do. Rest fully available in the saving life of Christ. Rest is available for us in Christ. So that brings us to the related consequences of resting. You're probably wondering still, some of you, like, why do I need to rest? Well, there are consequences if you don't. 
verses 2 and verse 6, Jesus has this scorching statement. By not resting, we're cut off from God, verse 2, and then we're thrown away and burned, verse 6. And I just go, ouch. Jesus, could you have just put it a little different? It's harsh, but really, it's just plain physics. It's just plain physics. Go ahead and throw this video. This will have no words, but some of you saw this. In fact, I'm just going to watch it with you. It's only 40 seconds. There's no words, but some dad's up in his room watching his son take out the recycling son. (laughs) Poor kid. Just wait for it, though. Oh, it's good. It's good. This is not my son, by the way. Oh, here we go. It gets even better. Yeah. (laughs) You can push, you can push, you can push, but eventually the north wind is going to get you, right? It is. Another analogy I once heard is just imagine that you're on this escalator and you want to get upstairs, but the escalator is moving down. And there's only one escalator, the down escalator, and you want to get upstairs. How would you make progress upstairs in a situation like that? (laughs) I mean, only through tremendous effort and exertion, if that's your only option. There are no stairs. There's no other escalator. Um, Breathtaking, breathless exertion. How many of you have run up an escalator before? Like a long one. I'm talking like SeaTac long or like, you know, I'm talking about. Okay. You can run for a while, but after a while, you're going to stop making progress and you're going to go down, and it's going to get you. You're like at the bottom there. You've been gotten before by the escalator. So here's your Forrest Gump moment of the day. Life is like a down escalator. Life is like a little boy with a recycling bin. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. We all know it. And yet if only a few of us are willing to admit it and do something about it. And here's what Jesus is inviting you to do. Step off the ground of your own life. Get off the escalator of your achievements. Step out of the way of the recycling bin of your failures. Let the wind take them. Rest. Just rest. I want to tell you a personal story where I discovered this. Last December, I was, wow, uh, I discovered this in a really painful way. Some of you know this, literally. Uh, I got shingles. So you've had, some of you had shingles. You talked to me about this. But uh, it started really slowly, just, you know, you get them around your chest and back. And uh, you, get to, you see them, you know, little sores. And I'm thinking, I'm a healthy guy. I don't think this is shingles. And Liv's like, oh, you should go to the doctor. I hadn't been to the doctor in eight years, nine years. I don't know how long. So I went to the doctor. Um, and she's like, yep, shingles. <laughs> and then she asked me this question. And this, by the way, is not my therapist. Are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I mean, this. But she said, well, here's the reason I asked the question. Shingles typically show up in people over 65 or 70. When they show up in people under 40, it's usually a sign of severe stress. That was a difficult doctor's appointment. Um, Just, I guess, realizing the point to which I'd come a year ago. And then the weeks ahead, oh my gosh, they were even worse because shingles gets worse before it gets better. 
the pain was just way too immense to describe to you. I, I tried to preach through it. There were weeks where I probably shouldn't have. I tried to pastor through it. I tried to be a dad through it, husband. But the, the beautiful thing that came out of the season, because uh, it was that season around December when you're supposed to be spending time with family and friends and whatnot, as I spent most of my time in bed, most of my time, just in my bed, just laying there because it was hurt so bad to move. And uh, I, did, I learned so much about rest. Like, literally, I had to rest physically. But whenever you know this, whenever you physically take a break, if you're even half open to God, <laughs> he starts to speak. And in that posture, I just began to hear God say, hey, you need to depend on me for your, your life. So here's the reality. It wasn't the first time I'd heard that, and it won't be the last. Like I said, I've come through a really difficult season already this year, and I'm just being reminded again. Like, I've just finished a house project. I see 10 more, and God says, that's a good metaphor, Jack. Rest. Take a break. Uh, depend on me for your life. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. You're going to be like that kid with the recycling bin. You're going to get swept up by it. Uh, so the invitation to you this morning, by way of a consequence, <laughs> cease striving. Cease striving. Step off the ground of your life and just come to a place of God, you're God, not me. So, and it's not just a mere physical implication, by the way. I'll just say this. There are some incredible promises that are held for us inside of rest. So those physical implications are great. Let me just look at three promises with you before we finish here, okay? And they're all illustrated here in, in John 15. The first is deep confidence, okay? So verse 7, I don't know if this got you guys. It always gets me. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Here's the promise. Ask whatever you want, and it'll be done. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, this has given me a lot of trouble, this statement by Jesus. I wish he could unsay that. Like lots of us have, we, we hear this, we've prayed this, and we hear either the name and claim it kind of movement, right? We think of the times where we've asked and not received. We prayed for healing, not healed. Uh, we prayed for God to deliver us, not delivered. We prayed for an outcome. Many of you were praying for an outcome on Tuesday, and the outcome wasn't what you expected. What does Jesus mean by saying, ask whatever you want, and it'll be done? Wow. Well, Dale Bruner, he's a professor, was a professor at Whitworth College, and um, he has a commentary on John that's amazing. He writes about that verse. He says, perhaps one answer to that question is that life at home in Jesus, resting in Jesus, will teach us to be sensible in our wants. Life at home in Jesus, resting in Jesus, will teach us to be sensible in our wants. So then he uses the analogy of a husband and wife or spouse, parent-child. And he says that spouses learn to be thoughtful in their requests with one another. Children do likewise. They learn to be thoughtful. So Saturday, you know, I'm sitting down yesterday, getting ready to write this sermon. <laughs> Elliot wakes up. Hey, Dad. Mom, Elizabeth's out for a run. And uh, he's like, hey, can I watch a cartoon on your iPad? By the way, I found out my iPad was burned this morning, like the battery's dead because he watched a lot of cartoons. I said, sure, you know, whatever, go ahead. 
And he goes, how many can I watch? I was like, I don't know, it's two or three. It's cool. He's like, well, I, I asked because mom usually lets me watch one or two. And I just wanted to be sure it was okay with you. And then he said this thing. I usually just throw a temper tantrum when mom says one or two. But I'm just learning, even though I told him two or three, so he's probably just hoodwinking me. But he says, I'm learning to ask and be okay with it, Dad. Isn't that cool? I was like, did somebody just swap my kid out for another kid in the middle of the night? Because I'm thinking, this is not my son. So I love this analogy that Bruner gives, right? Like, we're learning to be sensible in our wants with Jesus, like a child to a parent. He goes on to say this. This is a quote from Bruner. Jesus wants our wants to be taken very seriously as the material for his promises. He wants our wants to be taken very seriously as the material for his promises. He wants disciples, like you and I, if we're following Jesus, to think bravely and even miraculously of our wants. And then he says, may we not disrespect Jesus by asking thoughtlessly too far to the right, name it, claim it, or not asking at all, unbelieving, too far to the left. Well, answers to prayers don't come like they did in Jesus' day. He doesn't do miracles anymore. Jesus is challenging disciples with this remarkable verse, ask whatever you want, it'll be done for you to say, try me, try me. My wants are your wants. (laughs) Do you know my heart? So that's it. There's profound confidence in resting in Jesus as you get to know him. The second is this, profound joy. Verse 11, I've told you this so my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete joy. The literal there is filled to overjoying or joy, over spilling joy, right? Uh, But not just any joy. Notice it's his joy. I've told you this so my joy may be in you. So it raises a question for me. What is the joy of Jesus? What brings Jesus the most joy? Well, do you recall, you recall the first miracle of Jesus, probably, John chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is invited to this wedding. You've heard this story, right? Uh, and you know, weddings in those days, just like today, they're a big deal. Probably bigger deals then than they are now. In this sense, they lasted usually for about a week. And the key to the wedding was always the wine. This is why this miracle is so important. Uh, wine was kind of made what made that feast worth staying at for a week, Right? So, and it was also a symbol of abundance, like the more wine, the longer the party, uh, and a symbol of joy. So the key was that the groom's family were shown honor and brought honor to their family by providing enough wine for that week. Jesus is at this party, and what happens? The The wine runs out. Shame onto this family. Party over. Wedding done. So to make a long story short, uh, Jesus' mother hears about it, comes to Jesus. You know this whole thing, right? And Jesus does something about it. He produces 150 gallons of vintage wine, the best wine you can imagine if you're a wine connoisseur. I've always loved uh, Dostoevsky's interpretation of this parable. You've probably heard me talk about this before. Dostoevsky, every guy who went to SPU probably read some Dostoevsky, right? Because we all do. Yeah, so Stephen. <laughs> laughing. He says this in the Brothers Karamazov, ah, that miracle. Ah, that sweet miracle. It's not men's grief, but their joy that Christ visited. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. He who loves men, men and women, loves their gladness. Gladness. The gladness of some poor, very poor people 
His heart was open to the simple, artless merrymaking of some unlearned people who had warmly bidden him to their wedding. He was open to their joy. Do you hear what I'm saying? Our joy brings Jesus joy. Our joy is his joy. So there's another question for you. What brings you the most joy in life? What bring, literally, what brings you the most joy in life? I mean, some of you, it's a, it's a cold scoop of chocolate ice cream on a summer day. Others of you, it's the smell of a rose. Some of you, it's a particular melody on a song. It might be holding your son. But you know what? Those are just samples of joy. Uh, You know where we find the deepest joy? The deepest you can experience. I once heard someone put it this way. Nothing causes more joy than to be loved. Nothing causes more joy than to be loved. Like resting is how it connects to rest, remaining in Jesus. Nothing causes more joy than to be loved by Jesus. Resting in relationship with Jesus brings love into our lives. It allows us at a very human level even, if you think of it in terms of your relationships, when you lay on the couch with your son or daughter and just cuddle or read a book, you're resting inside that relationship, and that brings you joy. When you lay down next to your significant other, your spouse, not just not expecting anything, but just resting inside the intimacy and the friendship of that relationship, not needing anything, not needing to talk about anything, no pillow talk, just resting, just being together, that brings you joy. Resting inside of a friendship, uh, or, or better yet, someone you hardly know. When I was living on Capitol Hill years ago now, I was volunteering at New Horizons Ministries, does outreach to homeless teens in Seattle. And I lived right a block off Broadway on Harvard. And uh, I would just walk up and down Broadway, middle of the night, all the time, just doing outreach with New Horizons. So this one particular day, I was walking back and forth like three in the morning, and I kept seeing this particular young girl sitting in front of Dix. Three in the morning, Dix is closed. She's alone. And I'd passed her three or four times, you know. And I, you know, you'd think after the first time... Something the lights would go on. I got this nudge about that third or fourth time to sit down and strike up a conversation. So I did. I sat there. It was an awkward, it was awkward. We're like the only two people out there in the middle of the night. Uh, she was not someone I knew. I'm. I, maybe I was a little more intimidating than she. She was uncomfortable. I was looking her very intentionally in the eyes, you know. And I said, "Hey, my name's Jack. What's your name?" Awkward 30 seconds of silence. And then she began to cry. I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you or scare you. I'm just New Horizons. She's like, no, no, it's okay. It's just that um, I've been here all day since 8 o'clock this morning, and you're the first person to stop. And you're the first person to look me in the eyes. And you're the first person to ask me my name. That's what people need today. Post-Tuesday, in a world where we're more disconnected and at odds with each other than ever, uh, and not just from people in their own camp, people who agree with you already, but critically, remember what we prayed about, pray for your enemies, love those who persecute you. Those who don't agree with you, looking them in the eye, your so-called enemies, 
They need to be seen and be heard, known, loved, and accepted. And inside of that, when you do that, when you'll commit yourselves to it, you'll experience the promise of joy. You will. I promise you that. Jesus does the same. So that's the second promise, okay? Confidence, joy, and we'll finish with this. Lives that express the character of Christ, okay? Verses 5 and 8. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you rest in me, I and you, you're going to bear fruit. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear fruit, showing yourself to be disciples. In fact, if you go on to verse 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might bear fruit, fruit that will last. I don't know about you, but I have some fruit trees in my backyard. Fruit doesn't last that long. It goes bad. And Jesus says, if you remain in me, if you rest in me, you're going to be fruit that lasts. (laughs) The byproduct of resting, remaining in Jesus, is a life that bears fruit, lasting fruit, fruit that tastes good, that others can eat. That's a life that exhibits the character of Christ, okay? In other words, life in Christ is not you, Kurt, and then Jesus. It's not, that's not it. Whether it's been a good life or a not-so-good life, and so you add Jesus to your life, you know, his perfect life makes your life somehow better. That's not the Christian life. The gospel tells us again and again, life in Christ is Christ and Christ alone. Uh, Union with Jesus is total, absolute. As one commentator puts it, the fruit is not an artifact of the disciples' doing. It's the fruit of the vine. It's the fruit of Jesus. It is the life of Jesus expressed, reproduced in your own life. That's what Jesus is calling us toward. In the midst of this world in which we live, fruit that will last, the presence of the fruit is this visible, tangible evidence that Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We just bear his fruit. That's it. We're part of that vine today. And resting in him reveals that vine to the world. Which is the bottom line of rest. Verse 4, remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. The key to it all, here's the key, If you hear nothing else today, Christ is at rest in you. Christ is at rest in you. Think of that for a moment. Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life, died a sinless death, rose from the dead, and invites us into the newness of life. He is at rest in you. Take that home with you today. He makes his home in you. Uh, He extends his work on the cross through your life. Uh, I love how Paul puts it in uh, chapter 4 of Philippians. Don't fret or worry today, my friends. Pray. And let your petitions, whatever you ask, your whatevers, (laughs) and your praises, your joys, whatever brings you joy, let those things shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. And before you know it, guess what's going to happen? God's wholeness, who is Jesus, Everything coming together for good will come into you and settle you down. And then Paul says, isn't it wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of our lives? When we allow Jesus to be the vine, he's the vine, we're the branches. When we allow him to be that, isn't it amazing what happens to us? We become fruit. 
And that's the call of rest. So here's what I want to do right now. I want to invite you to turn back to that neighbor, the person you prayed with at the beginning, and articulate a worry and articulate a joy. In prayer, again, we're not debriefing Tuesday or anything. Articulate a worry, articulate a joy, and invite Jesus to displace those things with his life in your life, to become fruit, okay? Take a moment to do that, and then our worship leaders will uh, take us back into God's presence together.